when we were on our honeymoon, Karen and I kept having this weird experience in restaurants. We'd be sitting there looking at the menu, and the server would come up and go, are you two newlyweds? And I'd always, I was always like, how do you know? Well, looking back now, I realize it wasn't that hard. Okay, unlike I sometimes do now where we go in the restaurant and I plop in my chair and Karen sits in hers, I was running around to her side of the table and pulling out the chair and standing there patiently until she sat down and I helped her in with it. And then when we were sitting there at the table, we were gazing in each other's eyes. Sometimes we'd reach across the table and grab each other's hands like that. And apparently, uh, that isn't common among older couples. <laughs> Karen and I were out to dinner recently, and we noticed that the couple next to us, they had both pulled out their cell phones and were looking at them, which is normal. That I didn't think anything of it. And then, as the dinner went on, I realized they have not talked to each other once since they sat down. The only time they're talking is to the waiter when he comes back to find out what tapas they want the next time. Now, what is it, friends? What is it that would take the softness and tenderness of a heart toward each other when you're on your honeymoon and then it gets a little less soft and a little less soft and then somewhat inflexible and then actually kind of stiff and then hard and finally adamantine where you can sit there the whole evening with somebody and ignore them and treat them with actual contempt. How could that happen? What is it about the human heart that does that? And what's so frightening that I would set forth before you is that left to their own devices, our hearts do that, and they do it not just in human relationships, but in our relationship with God. I don't know if you've ever had those moments of clarity where you suddenly come to yourself and you're like, how did my heart toward God get here? You're like, well, I used to love to pray. I used to press in to pray. I couldn't wait to be in the presence of the God who created me and loved me. And now I'm so unmotivated. I'm bored with it. Like, what, what happened? You know, why is it that I used to actually seek out correction in my life? I would ask people for coaching and for guidance. And now if somebody tries to give me a corrective word, man, I just bristle and I'm defensive. Like, what happened to my heart there? Why is it that I used to really love it? If God asked me to do something, I was all in. I was there right then. I was like, Lord, whatever you want. And now I sit there with all these reasons why that would never make sense to do that, God, in this you know, sophisticated world I live in. What is it? I call it the second law of spiritual dynamics, the law of hardening of the heart. How do you deal with that? If you're going to follow God for any period of time, if you're going to keep the relationship alive, there has to be a way for that harder heart to actually reverse the process and go this way where it becomes a little more soft, a little more flexible, a little more pliable until it becomes exposed and open and vulnerable and tender and able to bond with the God who loves you. And thankfully, the prophet Joel tells us how. Would you turn there, please, to Joel 2? Joel's writing perhaps about 500 years before Christ, and there's been this devastating plague of locusts in his country. So he he says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. In other words, tornado siren, get in shelter. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, 
a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, referring to these locusts that have invaded. Now, when he says a day of darkness and gloom, that's not just poetic, it's literal. Exactly 100 years ago, in 1915, there was a large locust plague that came through Palestine. And the way that people knew the locusts were coming as they came in from the northeast is that the sun wasn't as bright. This is the Mediterranean. The sun's always bright, sunny, hot. And they were like, why is it gray? Why is it like dim over there? There can be clouds of locusts hundreds of miles across. And what they do is when they come into your country and then they land, they lay eggs. In a space this big right here, they can lay 60,000 eggs. And when those hatch a little while later, they eat every scrap in sight. Every leaf on a tree, every blade of grass, the bark on a tree. And they leave the place looking like the surface of the moon. And when you are an agricultural economy where your wealth is literally planted in the ground, it's devastating. It would be like the panic like we felt in 2007, 2008 with the global financial crisis when all of a sudden, man, companies started doing layoffs and people were losing jobs and people were losing their houses and the mortgages were flipping upside down and there were foreclosures and all of a sudden there were all these bank failures and consumers lost, get this, trillions of dollars of wealth. And we were all like, what is happening? And Joel says, I'll tell you what's happening. Verse 11. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? In other words, Joel says, this plague is no accident. God is in this. There's a message from God in this. Now, not every calamity, according to the Bible, is, has that kind of message or prophetic sense from the Lord. But this one did. And here's the message, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. God's saying, I see you, Judah, and you know where you've been? You've been over here with a hard heart. It's happened so slowly, so gradually, so imperceptibly that you don't see it. And the way God works is when you and I get in that condition, the first thing he likes to do is he'll send teachers. He'll send people who bring us the word of God, a friend, a coach, a counselor, a pastor, somebody who will just encourage us and give us some comfort and, and direction and guidance from the Lord. And that kind of softens us up a little bit and gets us going with the Lord again. And we're so thankful for that. And, and, and God loves it too. But sometimes our hearts are so hard, we don't respond to that. A friend or something speaks into our life and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then God sends a prophet, somebody who lays out very starkly, very clearly, even confrontationally, the, the, the directional choice that we're making with our life. And he says, look, if you keep going that way, you're going to be in a heap of trouble spiritually. But if you go this way, there's life and hope and a future in God. What's it going to be for you? Are you going to break up your heart or not and return to the Lord? And then if the prophets don't work as a last resort, and it's not his desire, God will send calamity in the hope that somehow maybe that'll get through to us. Maybe we'll finally have the moment of clarity that this is where we are with a really hardened up heart and we've got to turn back. Maybe in our desperation it'll actually cause us to start to move. And that's what Joel is saying here. He's saying these locusts are here as a way of saying, return, return to me. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. 
for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. He doesn't want to send it. He'd love to remove it immediately. And later on, as you read in this chapter, the people do repent and he does remove them. Let's look at this phrase, which is so critical. How do you rend your heart? Rend is a word meaning tear apart. And the prophet says, I don't need you to tear apart your clothing. That was a very common sign in their culture. It was used when you were in so much anguish that crying wasn't going to express it. You were in so much anguish that groaning wasn't going to express it. You had to actually physically tear something. You were so distraught. Or when you were so angry, you were so outraged, that should not be on God's good earth. You just tear that thing. And God's saying, would you do that to your heart? Would you break it up? Would you finally realize that the condition of your soul is so hard toward me, you're so distanced from me, and it snuck up on you so gradually, you have no awareness of it? Would you just tear it open and break it open so that you and I could have a relationship again, so that we could have that tenderness between us that we used to have? Would you come back all the way over here and return to me, your first love? God's like a wounded lover. He's like, don't try to buy your way back in here. What I really need is is a change. I need a change in you. I need an attitude change. I need a broken, open heart. That's what I'm looking for. That's what matters to me. And if you'll do that, you'll experience me as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, how do you break open a heart? How How do you tear it apart? We know how to tear apart clothing, but what do you do with a heart that needs that? And Joel says in verse, uh, verse 12, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. I don't know about you. I don't like to fast. <laughs> My blood sugar drops. I get cranky. Can't think straight. But there's something about that that works on us. I was reading about uh, to open up our heart. I was reading Andy Crouch's uh, book, uh, playing God, very good book. And, and in it, he writes about how every Lent, when he tries to fast, he, he says it's this darkly comical reminder of how little self-discipline I really have. He, one Lent, he said, I tried to come up with the easiest fast I could think of. And what his was, was I'm not going to put milk in my tea during Lent. I'm not going to give up tea, you know, <laughs> but I, I, won't, I won't put milk in it. So he said, there he is, the second week in of Lent, and he's standing at the refrigerator, kind of looking this way and that, and pulling it open, and pours the milk in his tea. He said, it was the sweetest cup of tea I ever had, and it was the bitterest cup of tea I ever had. But you see, right then, what do you realize about yourself? As you're failing at your chosen fast, you're realizing, you know what? I need God. I need a God who's gracious and compassionate. And all of a sudden, you experience God that way. Do you see how it works? If you fast, it's not so that you look awesome. It's, it's for what's called the intentional pursuit of defeat. Because when, you, when, you, when, when you're in defeat, when you're weak and your blood sugar is low and all this stuff, then you experience God is gracious and compassionate. When you find out you blow your fast, God is gracious and compassionate. That's fasting. That's why Christians have so valued that discipline. It's not to show off. It's to put yourself in a place where your heart breaks open and you experience God's grace. Or how about weeping and mourning? This doesn't mean you make yourself cry. There's no value in emotional display. What it means is, is that you get so in touch 
with how hard your heart has become, that it wrecks you. You're like, I hate that about myself. How did I let that happen? I had the chance to hear confession uh, of a person not that long ago. And, and uh, he's a very strong person. Not, not a highly emotional person whatsoever. But as he got in touch face to face, telling another Christian, this is the real truth about my heart. This is what I've been going after. And I'm so ashamed. He just broke and cried. And I'm saying there was such a presence of the Holy Spirit right then. It was when, right then, as his heart is breaking open and weeping and mourning over his sin, that he experiences God as gracious and compassionate. And I was able to just assure him of the forgiveness of the Lord. Oh, friends, don't exclude yourself for any reason from breaking open your heart this Lent. In fact, Joel says in verse 16, gather the people for this holy fast, this sacred assembly, consecrate the assembly. He says, bring together the elders. Maybe you've been around a long time. You're like, I'm too set in my ways. I'm too old. I can't really change. Yes, you can. God wants you back. Or children, those nursing at the breast, you'd think they wouldn't have to come out. They've got to go down, right, and get their sleep. But Joel says they need to be here too. Even if you're young and still driven by dreams and your own impulses and hormones and all the things that you want to do and you think you'll get to the God thing later, no, no, start right now with a tender heart. Open up your heart to God. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Give up the most important day of your life to come and make sure your heart gets right. It's that important. In Hebrew culture, marriage was so sacrosanct that if you got married, you didn't have to go to war for a year. You were exempted from going to war. It was that important. And Joel says, this is more important than going to war. If you don't get your heart right with God, you can't do anything. The most important thing you could do, even above getting married and, 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 and celebrating on your wedding day, who cares that you sent out the invitations and you're going to lose your deposit with the caterer? Let it go. Because the most important thing for you right now is to get your heart right. You've got to tenderize your heart. And you can't do that unless you come together in fasting and weeping and mourning. You know, as I read about the bridegroom and the bride, I thought, boy, they are symbolic of most of us, aren't they? They're so busy with such great stuff that they just, they don't have time to go to this sacred assembly. You know, and we're all so busy with such awesome stuff and we're all running ragged. And God's saying, how about you just turn? How about you just stop? Is there anything you'd be willing to give up out of your calendar to just to have a little more uh, connection with me? Karen and I got a trip of a lifetime chance two years ago to go to Rome. And for a church history geek like me, I was just so pumped because every, you know, five steps, there's another historic church and a museum and this site and that. And I had this book with all this stuff tagged that I wanted to see. And we only had a few days there, and so, so much to do, so little time. Well, Rome is built on seven hills, as it's famously known. And I, with my long legs, was just pumping up those hills to get to the next site and see the next thing. And then I'd wait for Karen, and then I'd get a little frustrated, and she'd get frustrated. So we sat down at a cafe to take a break. And she said, you know what's going to be my picture of Rome when we go home? I go, no, what? The back of your head. And even though the prophet was so subtle, I got it. And <laughs> I'm so busy with all this good stuff. 
And I forgot the real reason we're here is to connect. That's why we came. That's why we're doing all this. Oh, friends, if we just stop all the good stuff we're doing just long enough to make sure our heart's right and reconnect with the Lord. And here's what I promise you if you will do that. It's when you open up your heart and return to the Lord your God that you'll experience him as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Have you ever had this experience, as I have sometimes, where you don't pray for a while, you're not motivated, you just get out of the rhythm, you don't do it. You know you should, you feel bad that you're not, but you're not. And then you feel, uh, you kind of hit this time where you're kind of desperate. Something comes into your life that's really bothering you, and you're like, oh man, I really need God, I need God for this. And so now you're praying, not because you really love God, not because you really just want to hear from him or be intimate with the Lord who made you. You're just there because you're desperate. You're just like, oh, God, I need this. I need this. And honestly, if, if I were God in that situation, I've thought about this, I would be like, with my arms crossed, like, well, 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 look who just slunk in here. It's been a while, hasn't it? And what are you here for now? You know what? I've been a Christian 40 years. God has never once done that to me. Isn't that amazing? You go in prayer and he just welcomes you with an embrace that you don't deserve. Do you want to experience the graciousness of God, the compassionate heart of God, the fact that God is so slow to anger, he's not mad at you, that he wants to relent from calamity, that he's so abounding in love? Do you want to experience God's heart? then what you have to do is break open yours. Amen.